Um, what do you want from life more than anything else? It's a similar question to the question that uh, Andrew's been asking us through the service. Let me ask the question a different way. Uh, when you get to the end of your life and you look back over the years, when you survey the life you've lived, what is it that will enable you to say that was a good life? Oh, acknowledging all the mistakes you made, but looking at the general direction of your life and all that you achieved, what will enable you to say that was a life well lived? What will it be? A successful career? A loving home? Great sporting achievements? Outstanding acts of mercy? Having provided for your family? What constitutes a successful life? Well, let me turn your mind to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Do you know it? Um, Some of you will know it, even without knowing it. At least you might know this first question. Remember how it goes? What is the chief end of man? And the answer... Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. See, what is it for the Christian that constitutes a successful life? It is a life that has glorified God. For that is what we were made for. That is what life is about, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, as we continue this morning to think about prayer by looking at the Lord's Prayer, that is what the second line of the Lord's Prayer is all about. Hallowed be your name. Lord, may your name, may you be glorified. That should be the big deal for all Christians, but desperately that is not high on British Christians' agenda today, and you can tell that by listening to the way that we pray. Largely, we pray the way that any pagan would pray if they were to pray at all. We long for, work for and pray for financial security and good health and success in our jobs and, well, and all the things our unbelieving friends long for and work for. I take the recent credit crunch and the turmoil in the financial institutions around the world as an example. How have we prayed about that situation if we prayed about it at all? Have we even dreamt of praying that the credit crunch would bring this nation to its knees and call thousands, millions even, to consider Christ? In our Christian circles, it seems we find it hard to live without financial security and there seems to be no acknowledgement that to be in need and to have to rely on the Lord will not only deepen our relationship with him and strengthen our faith in him, but will also bring glory to him as we see him meeting our needs. In the summer of 1990, I worked for seven weeks in New York City amongst the homeless. Most of them were drug addicts as well. I worked at a place called St Paul's House on West 51st Street where every day a breakfast was provided for the homeless, any who'd come. At around seven o'clock one evening, we had no food to give the 50 or 60 homeless people who would be coming the next morning for breakfast. We had no money to buy food. St Paul's House simply didn't operate that way. It had virtually no money all the time. It just lived off people giving them things. All the food we ever gave out was first given to us. Uh, But on this occasion, the cupboards were bare. And so the pastor uh, gathered us around. We were a team of five or six people, that's all. And he encouraged us to pray to the God who provides. And we prayed. Boy, did we pray. We pleaded with the Lord. See, we not only had no food for the homeless, we had none for ourselves, and boy, did we pray. And seconds later, and it was quite a long prayer meeting, 
because uh, we were really desperate, and seconds later, literally seconds after the last Amen, the doorbell rang and we opened the door to a huge delivery of food from one of the businesses in New York. It was more than enough to feed the men and women who would be coming to us the next morning and ourselves and for some time. And God was glorified. We praised him and thanked him and blessed his holy name. And you see, he was glorified far more than he would have been had we never been in such need in the first place. But most of us, I imagine, know nothing of that. Most of us have never really needed to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Most of us have not seen the Lord provide like that because our life revolves around financial security, because we live for a healthy bank balance and God's glory is not our chief aim. Let me give you one other example before we move on. Listen to how we pray when it comes to health issues. Many of you here have given your lives to Uh, the health service, and you know how people expect you to be able to make them better. They expect that of you. The great British public consider health their right, don't they? It seems to me most Christians are no different. Listen to the way we talk to God about our health. Now, Now, please don't mishear me. When someone is ill, there's nothing wrong with praying for them to get better. We believe that God heals today. You can pray for my hand. That's fine. I'd like it to be better. But here's the point. I cannot remember the last time I heard someone praying not just for healing but for the Lord to be glorified in and through illness. And yet I've seen, and I guess you've seen it too, I've seen people cope with pain and extraordinary suffering and even death in the most outstanding way so that God has been glorified. I think of a lady called Tracy Trinder. She died of cancer, I think it was about seven years ago now. It had been a long battle with the illness over the years. At times uh, we thought she'd won the battle, but when it finally came to acknowledge that she was not going to get better, the way she handled herself was quite remarkable. I have no right for healing, she said. People sometimes ask me, why, why me, she said, but I say, why not me? Tracy was so sure of the love of her Father in Heaven that in the last days of her life, when she was in the hospice and and people visited her, one of her friends said this to me, she is remarkable, she is so at peace and there is such peace in that room, I can't understand it. Tracy died well. And as a result, the following summer, her husband Ron invited all her unbelieving friends to a barbecue in their garden and asked me to speak at it to tell these people the Gospel. And you know, they were all ready to listen because of Tracy's death. Her life, indeed her death, glorified God. But we rarely think like that and we rarely pray to that end. Again, don't mishear me, it's fine to pray for people to be healed. But do we ever pray that through illness the Lord will be glorified? See, the point is this, to what extent are our lives and therefore our prayers about the glory of God? Uh, Don Carson, in in this excellent book that I mentioned last week, A Call to Spiritual Reformation, writes this. When it comes to knowing God, we're a culture of the spiritually stunted. So much of our religion is packaged to address our felt needs. And these are almost uniformly anchored in our pursuit of our own happiness and fulfilment. 
God simply becomes the great being who potentially at least meets our needs and fulfills our aspirations. We think rather little of what he is like, what he expects of us, what he seeks in us. We're not captured by his holiness and his love. His thoughts and words capture too little of our imagination, too little of our discourse, too few of our priorities. Now, do you see the point? Listen to the way we pray. So little of our praying is pleading with the Lord that we would know him better, that we would bring our lives in line with his will and purposes, which is what we'll think about next week. And this week, that he would be glorified. Yet that is at the very heart of the prayer that we say so often, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Uh, Last week we considered the first line of that prayer and we saw how our Father in heaven was the foundation of prayer, indeed how it should be the motivation for prayer. This morning as we come to the second line, hallowed be your name, it is a prayer for the honour and glory of God. And if you're taking notes, do note this, it is striking that Um, This is the first thing we are to pray for. This is not just the first of many things, this is the primary thing. Uh, Kent Hughes remarks, the divinely given pattern for prayer is first upward to God, not outward to humanity or inward to our needs. J.C. Ryle wrote when commenting on this line, hallowed be your name, the glory of God is the first thing that God's children should desire. It is the purpose for which the world was created. See, it's no accident then that having come to our Father in heaven, the first thing we should turn our minds towards is for his name to be hallowed. Indeed, that should be the driver behind all our praying. Hallowed be your name should be what all the rest of the prayer is about. Well, to understand this line of the prayer, hallowed be your name, let's split it into two chunks. Firstly, your name, the the name of God. Uh, These days we we rarely think about the meaning of names, except I guess when when we have children born. Uh, We did certainly when, uh, like all parents, we spent hours trying to choose our children's names. We we had all sorts of criteria in mind. Uh, What would the initials spell? I think that was quite important. You'd be left with some pretty awful initials, can't you? Um, another uh, one of the things that we thought about was um, will our children spell, spend their lives spelling out their names every time they give it? And we thought about that long and hard. And yet still we came up with Susanna. <laughs> Does it have an S or a Z? Does it have an H on the end? And the other name? Bethan. What? Everybody says Bethany. How's that spelled? We didn't do very well. We got a couple of books out of the library and uh, to tell us the meanings of names. And that came into it as well. I can still remember that Joshua means the Lord saves because it's so clearly in the Bible, but I can't remember exactly what Susanna or Bethan mean, even though we thought about it. My parents obviously spent a lot of time considering my name and thinking about it. Uh, did you know that Paul means small? <laughs> but how did they know? <laughs> did they not feed me? <laughs> I don't know. Now look, the point is this, beyond choosing names for our children, we think little about their meaning. But for the first century Jew, names meant something. And when names are given in the Bible, either to places or to people, when it's to people, the name expresses the character. 
Listen to these words, there's no need to turn them up. Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Isn't that interesting? And of course, to trust in the name of the Lord is to trust in the Lord himself, for the name reflects the character. Do you remember when the angel spoke to Joseph about the baby in Mary's womb? The angel said, you shall call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And Jesus means the Lord saves. So call him Jesus because that is what he'll do and who he is. He is the Lord who saves. The name describes the character. And you'll see as you read the Bible, the Lord reveals himself through his name. Now to see this, turn with me to Exodus chapter 34, the first of our two readings, pages 92 and 93 in the church Bibles. Exodus chapter 33 and 34. And as we uh, turn to this, page 92 and 93, we'll see that here the Lord reveals himself to Moses. Moses wants to know the Lord. Uh, And it's very striking how the Lord reveals himself. Uh, Just as a bit of background, look at chapter 33, verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me, lead these people, but... You've not let me know whom you will send with me. You've said, I know you by name and you have found favour with me. If you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favour with you. Remember that this nation is your people. That's the background. Then look down to verse 18. Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. Now, here we are then. The Lord is about to display all his goodness. Uh, Moses is asked to see his glory. And what happens is, in chapter 34, the Lord declares his name. That's how he declares his glory. That's how he declares who he is. Now, look at chapter 34, verse 5. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord, And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. That's who the Lord is, you see. And I love this. How many times have you heard people say, maybe you've said it yourself, the God of the Old Testament is harsh and vindictive and cruel and distant? Well, look here at the self-revelation of God right at the heart, right at the beginning of the Old Testament. The Lord is, Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, he is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He's faithful. He is forgiving. And only when you've read that do you get the next bit, which is he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Now, of course, um, that's part of his love as well. Uh, If he didn't uh, punish guilty people, he wouldn't be loving at all. None of us want guilty people to get away with murder, do we? But that is who the Lord is, you see. I uh, lost my temper with one of my children this week. I'm not proud of it. I prayed since then that I would not lose my, my temper with them. 
And the reason I tell you that is the Lord does not do that. He does not lose his temper. He is patient. He is slow to anger. For him to be angry, he has been driven to it. And even when he is finally angry, he's been long-suffering and patient and compassionate and gracious and forgiving. That's who God is. When he does get angry, it's fully deserved and completely under control. That's the one true God. And we know that because he has revealed himself through his name, the Lord. Now, do you see, pray hallowed be your name is to pray that God would be known as he really is. I ask most people in Britain to describe God and they won't come up with Exodus 34. Ask most Christians in Britain and they may not come up with Exodus 34 either. Ask most people on the streets about God and what will they come up with? Some will describe God as a distant, unknown God. I believe somebody's up there, but I don't know what he's like. Others will think of him as a vindictive, cruel God, as we've just thought, you know, the God of the Old Testament, as they say. Others go to the other extreme and and believe that he's a sickly, sugar daddy, Father Christmas in the sky kind of God, but they won't describe him like this. Ask people from other religions about their view of God and they will describe someone quite different to this. And as an aside, let's be sure we realise that Uh, Other religions are not following the same God just with a different name. They are following a different God. The character of of these other gods are quite different to this God, the one true living God. And people don't know the one true living God. And because people don't know the one true living God, they don't want to know him. So often when I'm talking to unbelievers, and I guess you get it as well, they'll say to me, I don't want to follow a God who lets people get away with murder doesn't care about evil, doesn't answer my prayers. And I usually respond by saying to them, no, I don't want to follow a God like that either, and Christians don't follow a God like that. Now you see, the point is, the line of this in the Lord's Prayer, uh, uh, um, hallowed be your name, is that the, the Father in heaven, as he actually is, would be known. And not only known, but respected, honoured and glorified. Uh, For the second part of the prayer is, hallowed be your name. Let's think about that then. Uh, St. Chrysostom said that hallowed included the idea of honour. Calvin said that to hollow, to hallow, calls for the greatest veneration. To hallow means to set apart as holy or to revere. And just think about that for a moment. Imagine we pray this prayer and it's answered. Imagine this nation hallowing God's name. Imagine this nation considering the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ as someone not to be messed with, not to be ignored, not to be ridiculed, but someone actually to be revered, listened to above all the other competing voices in the world. That'd be spectacular, wouldn't it? That's what we should pray. Hallowed be your name. That's what the prayer is about. Oh, imagine our church. Yes, Christ Church forward, but, but the, the, the church at large. Imagine the church hallowing God's name. Imagine the church considering our Heavenly Father as someone not to be simply considered, thought about, weighed up, not to be one of a number of competing voices, not to be given a place in our lives, but to be given the most important place in our lives. Imagine what it would be like for his honour and glory to be our greatest concern. 
That's what we should pray for. And that is what is to be at the heart of all our prayers. That's the point. Hallowed be your name. And uh, as I was preparing this, you see, we do need to be praying this, don't we? Because as things stand in the wider church, and I, I hope we're not like this, but we've got to check ourselves as well, but certainly in the wider church, the name of God is not revered. We do not revere the living God as he has revealed himself in his name. Whether it be the insistence from some that we call God Mother, even though he has revealed himself as Father, or the continual refusal to believe that God does punish sin, so people deny that even though he said he does, in his name, which means that almost anything goes in church because you know, sin doesn't matter, God won't punish it anyway or the reinterpretation of what is and what isn't sin, especially in the sexual arena, in so many ways the wider church refuses to hallow, to revere the name of the Lord as he has revealed himself. So we must pray this prayer, hallowed be your name. It is an important prayer to pray. But question, how often do we pray like that? And the more important question, is that our greatest concern? And do we allow this prayer, hallowed be your name, to shape all our praying? Uh, Martin Luther, in his Greater Catechism, it's obviously the day for catechisms, asked the question, how is God's name hallowed among us? Answer, when our life and doctrine are truly Christian. When our life and doctrine are truly Christian. So Don Carson comments, in a way to pray, hallowed be your name, is to pray, make me holy, grant that I may reverence you, work in me and others so that we will acknowledge your unsurpassed and glorious holiness always. See, the point to to pray, hallowed be your name, is to pray that we would live lives that glorify God. Because we all know how Christians who fail to live as they should dishonour the name of the Lord whether it be the Christian gossip or the immoral Christian leader or anything in between, when Christians fail to live the Christian life, God's name is not revered. When we live sub-Christian lives, people don't only turn away from us, they turn away from him, with comments like, well, if that's Christianity, then I don't want anything to do with it. So you see, to pray, hallowed be your name, is to be praying that my life, our lives, would be exceptionally holy and glorifying to God. That's why one of my constant prayers for Christchurch Forward is a prayer that I prayed at my institution and I've prayed many times since and it's basically this, that the Lord would save us from division, that would deny the unity of the Spirit because you know what happens when a church is, is, is divided, God's name is trashed. That he would spare us from scandal that would dishonour his name, again we've seen that in churches and that he would deliver us from error that we would properly handle the word of God because that would undermine the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and again, one way or another, would dishonour his name. Uh, Listen to this prayer of uh, Gregory of Nyssa. May I become, through thy help, blameless, just and pious. May I abstain from every evil, speak the truth and do justice. May I walk in the straight path, shining with temperance, adorned with incorruption, beautiful through wisdom and prudence. May I meditate upon the things that are above and despise what is earthly, showing the angelic way of life. 
For a man can glorify God in no other way save by his virtue which bears witness that the divine power is the cause of his goodness. You see what Gregory is saying? He's basically saying, please Lord, help me to live the most fantastic, amazing life that it is so outstanding that the only way I could live that life is from power from on high and so people will look at me and say, "Uh, glory to God because of that life. That's what he's praying. And to pray hallowed be your name then means to pray that we would be holy individually and corporately as God's people. Yet of course it is more than that. That's not the final goal. The highest goal of this prayer is not for us to be made holy but that God's name be hallowed. And of course as ever uh, Jesus is our example par excellence. So as we uh, come to a close draw with me to uh, come with me to John chapter 12 the second of our two readings page 1080, and we'll see how Jesus prayed. Page 1080, John chapter 12. John 12, page 1080, and you're finding that passage. Um, This is uh, the Lord Jesus facing his death, and look how he prayed, facing death. Remember the, the Garden of Gethsemane, how in one sense he'd have done anything to avoid his death because it was going to be so painful. And with that in mind, look at verse 27 of John 12. Now my heart is troubled, said Jesus, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. You see? Jesus gave his own life that the Father's name be glorified. It wasn't, uh, Father, make, give me an easy route. That wasn't his chief concern. Jesus prayed this prayer because the greatest desire is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now the question, is that our desire? Is that the goal of our life? And does our praying reflect that? Do we only ever pray for everything to go well for us? For comfort and health and wealth and all the pleasures of this life to be available to us? Or do we ever pray as Jesus prayed? Not save me from this trouble, but glorify your name through this trouble. Friends, how many times have we said, hallowed be your name? For those of us who've been coming to church for years, we'll have said it literally hundreds of times. But how many times have we prayed it? Prayed prayers that are not driven by our well-being, but by a desire for God's glory which in God's economy will always be our good. That's what this prayer is about. It's a great prayer to pray. And my prayer, as I've been preparing, is that that I and we would begin to not just pray the line, hallowed be your name, but actually to shape all our prayers around what that prayer actually means. Well, let's turn to pray now.